It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. You probably heard about the frufara, the falderal, the fraca around this new exploit called Poodle. Steve says it's just a load of mutton. The latest on Poodle and all the security news next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 478, recorded October 21st, 2014. Poodle Bites. Security Now is brought to you by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for IT operations and developers to ensure that the right engineers are notified at the right time. Increase your uptime and sign up for a 14-day free trial at pagerduty.com slash twit. And by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Visit sharefile.com, click the microphone, and enter security now. And by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com. Get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code security now when you check out. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your uh, security, your privacy online. We talk about hacks, exploits, attackers, the new word Steve's going to use for bad guys on the net. Uh, yep. Steve Gibson's here. That's the Steve I'm talking about of GRC.com, the creator of uh, Spinrite and also a father of spyware. Not that he made it. He discovered it and created the first anti-spyware tools. It's good to see you once again, Steve. Ten years we've been doing this show. <sighs> Almost. Feels like just the other day you were suggesting this. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, what? I don't think we have enough to talk about. Second In fact, show we did we on the Twitter network. We have so much to talk about. We don't even get to our regularly scheduled stuff anymore. It's like we, th- this week was supposed to be a Q&A to follow up on last week's discussion of the of the tokenizing uh, purchasing system. Uh, and one of my little notes here is uh, just to mention that, of course, Apple Pay went live yesterday. And in fact, my phone, I, I went over and it was like saying, hey, you know, you can update to 8.1 at any time. And I thought, oh, well, OK, I'll do it now. So it's over there doing that. But what happened was we talked I, I mentioned sort of tangentially last week that there were rumors of something that was going to be disclosed. I think I said noon Pacific time on Wednesday. Uh, then it was like synchronized with some particular time in Europe. I don't remember what or why, but it didn't last that long. The, the you know it was just too big, and so it leaked out later in the day on Tuesday, and that's this so-called and annoyingly named poodle exploit uh you know it, you know 2014 looking back on it i hope we're able to look back what on it what a bad year uh, huh <laughs> it's really been a rough year yeah boy heartbleed and uh what was the one we just had i'm blanking on shell shock heartbleed and shell shock and now we have poodle aye, 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 aye. um what i'm excited about this podcast because because this is a, a really interesting problem which pulls a lot of the different things that we've discussed over the years together. People who have not 
managed to survive with us over the years, uh, or, or the, that is who haven't been here that long, will still be able to follow along. But, but what I realized when I was first researching it last week was that it was nonsense. It, it's, it's like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. Um, it, it turns out that, that there is a problem, but nobody would ever attack you that way. So, uh, and and by the end of the podcast, everyone will understand what I mean by that because it's really not that complicated. But it's got lots of interesting moving parts and details, which is you know the kind of stuff we like to do here. So I think everyone is going to enjoy um, the next hour and a half or so. Uh, and there really wasn't, other than that, that much news. Um, so, but but we'll we'll get to that and uh, and then uh, dig into. Poodle puddles. <laughs> it reminds me of Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> Does your poodle bite? <laughs> it's not my poodle. <laughs> uh, our show today, we got a brand new sponsor, Steve. I'm really excited about this. What? What? Yes. Who? Well, Tell me. I. You know, you might understand this better than I do. Anybody who has uh, worked in ops and operations and knows how important it is when you know when something's when the servers are down, the bandwidth collapses, a room a overheats. Time. These are bad Not things. Not a good time. And no. of course, you're probably you start, make, you start making apologies to everyone in your life. Yes, I, you know I'm sorry, but I really gotta go. This has to. This, this has to gotta go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and these, so this is the pager class, the people who wear beepers on their belt. And uh, nowadays, I guess it's probably just uh, smartphones. But uh, for you, there is PagerDuty. PagerDuty is an operations performance platform that delivers visibility and actionable intelligence. You can tell I'm reading this because I've never been in this situation. Visibility. Oh, it's not D O O D Y. Not duty. Ah, duty. Are you on? So, as in, are you on PagerDuty, honey? Yeah, I am. Okay. Well, have a nice time sleeping on the couch. <laughs> Page your duty will help you increase the uptime of your apps, your servers, your websites, your databases. If your customers depend on your software and services to always be up, Page your duty is a must-have tool. In fact, I know some of you already know about it. I see the chat room says, "Oh yeah, Page your duty. We use Page your duty. Page your duty is you know is the hub of your operations. Connects all your systems into a single view. Integrates with hundreds of." Uh, software packages, including, as you can see on the uh, website, Nagios, New Relic, Keynote, App Dynamics. Of course, there are APIs, so you can roll your own. With PagerDuty, you'll decrease your resolution time because an incident, when an incident occurs, PagerDuty's smart. It notifies the right team and member based on on-call schedules and personal alerting preferences. So, you know, nice. you're not all going to get beeped at once if alerts are yeah. missed. PagerDuty automatically escalates to a second team member until it's responded to and a third and a fourth. You can customize it to fit how you and your team work regardless of location or size. Dispatch alerts by automated phone calls, SMS, email, push notifications. Uh, resolve incidents on the go so you can live your life even while you're on call. PagerDuty's analytics tools will also identify common problems, allowing you to proactively make system improvements and prevent future 
out outages. It's relentless nice. when it comes to reliability. <laughs> okay, the, that this okay. This copy is now for the boss. It, <laughs> it's relentless when it comes to reliability. Fully distributed across multiple data centers and multiple hosting providers. There are also multiple contact method providers. If somebody's down, doesn't matter. You'll never miss an alert. Microsoft uses it. GitHub uses it. Boeing uses it. That should tell you all you need to know. Nike, Pinterest, Box. Uh, a lot of startups use it. It is incredible. And I want you nice. to try it right now. Get the right engineer on the right problem at the right time. Visit pagerduty.com slash twit, and you're going to get a two-week trial. And for as little as 19 bucks a month, your uptime can go up, up, up with PagerDuty. And by the way, when you sign up, you'll also be entered for a chance to win a PagerDuty exclusive on-call survival kit. That's pagerduty.com. <laughs> slash twit pagerduty.com slash twit we welcome them and you know what? it's great that they're on this show because probably there are more people with beepers listening to this show than any other in our whole network yeah i'll bet this gets a lot of traction for yeah, them that, that yeah. looks like a great solution yeah, that's what you need in fact a couple of people in the chat room said oh yeah we used it we use it all right steve Okay, so like I said, not a lot of news uh, this week. We did have, I just sort of wanted to mention because a lot of people tweeted it. Uh, unfortunately, we've got the FBI guy, James Comey, who is like much in the news lately, now grumbling uh, at a, his first official speaking engagement at the Brookings Institution in Washington. It is like his first major policy speech, even though he's been at the FBI for 13 months. I guess, you know, someone said, come talk to us. And he, so he's, he's complaining, not surprisingly, because we've been hearing grumbles of, of this for the last few weeks, uh, about the the encryption, the enhanced encryption in Apple and Google products. And now, as expected, beginning to make noises about maybe it's time for a legislative uh, fix, uh, in quotes. A backdoor. Exactly. And, and of course, ev our listeners will know that I felt this happening a couple of years ago, which is why I stopped working on CryptoLink was because it just felt to me like the way the country was going, there was going to be some legislation. I mean, or if nothing else, we were going to go through a painful period, and we're we're not in it yet. <laughs> we're approaching it because um, uh, the Huffington Post uh, covered this, and, and I liked their their re reporting of it. They said that Comey said. He understood the quote, and I love this. This is this is like, you know, poll tested. The justifiable surprise many Americans felt after formal National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden's disclosures about mass government surveillance. Yes, that we were justifiably surprised, Leo. Um uh, he, but but he said he contend the, the the Huffington Post that he contends that recent shifts by companies like Apple and Google to make data stored on cell phones inaccessible to law enforcement have gone too far. Comey said, "Quote: Perhaps it's time to suggest that the post Snowden pendulum has swung too far in one direction." Okay, now I would argue it's still on its upswing away from, you know, center where it had been. 
Um, and he said, in a direction of fear and mistrust, justice, he said, may be denied because of a locked phone or an encrypted hard drive. And when I saw that, I got a little chill. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, whoa, whoa, what, what? An encrypted hard drive, uh-huh. So um, Comey said that the FBI was seeing, quote, more and more cases, unquote, in which law enforcement officials believe there was significant evidence on a laptop or phone which they couldn't access. So we are talking about hard drive encryption, too, uh, due to encryption. It's not clear, however, that any of the cases he specifically referenced, and apparently he, he talked about uh, a murder in Louisiana and a hit-and-run homicide in California, uh, that they could not have been solved with a traditional warrant to, uh, to cellular service providers. And then, happily, Matthew Green, our assistant crypto professor at Johns Hopkins, who's been much active recently, he was... He was um, approached by the Huffington Post for his reaction to this. And he said, law enforcement has access to more data than they've ever had. As a society, we're just finally trying to get back to a point where it's a little more in line with what law enforcement would have been able to get back in the 80s. You know, meaning that we we have to have some sense of balance here. Um and then on background, the Huffington Post finished by saying that Snowden's revelations had provoked a crisis abroad for major U.S. tech companies, which could lose billions as foreign customers leery of American software and devices compromised by the NSA turned to other providers. Comey said that he was, quote, not trying to jump on the companies like Apple and Google that implemented encryption systems closed off to law enforcement and that he believed they were, quote, responding to a marketing imperative. So anyway, it's just, okay, you know, I mean, this, this, you know, back when the whole Snowden revelations occurred, one of the things we said on this podcast was that this was going to happen, that, you know, math is fundamentally unbreakable. We have unbreakable math. And the fact that we've been maybe somewhat lackadaisical in deploying it or enforcing it doesn't mean that it's not available to us. And it really hasn't taken long at all. What, a year? And because I think it was just about a year ago. And, you know, look at, you know, the, the, the terrain from the from from the from the protection of the consumer's privacy today looks very different than it did a year ago, and you know, and all of us would argue. I mean, I, I heard you on MacBreak Weekly covering the uh, China government hacking story, where they had been they were basically using a weak browser to to get man in the middle interception of their citizens' access to iCloud and using it to capture their usernames and passwords in order to decrypt their data. And so it, it's it's not anti-law enforcement. I mean, I understand the FBI, from the FBI position, that's their bias and the way they see it, but it's, it's as truly as much protection against foreign governments and attackers as it is against law enforcement. I mean, it, it is just privacy that the math makes possible. 
Okay. Um, you, you've paused. <laughs> you never pause. I had the I'm shocked. I had a mouthful uh, of noodles. What's yes? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, we were talking at uh, before we recorded. Yes, you and I Unity. both. Re- yes, you and I both received envelopes from Ubico. Uh, uh, our friend Stina Evansfard at uh, Ubico. Uh, the, my Twitter feed went crazy starting around midnight last night. Um, Google posted on their blog, and Ubico sent out coordinated news and also provided you and me both with two of their latest toys. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you've got the little blue one right there. Um, and then there's a little tiny one called the Neo N. Um, uh, okay, so Stina and the Ubico engineers uh, have been working with both. Well, of course, they, they, we know that they have a long time past affiliation with Google because it's one of the reasons that Stina moved Ubico from Sweden over to the peninsula was that so she could be here in Silicon Valley in the hotbed of all this. And of course, Google is a major player here. So she's been working with them. And she's also, I think I read that she's on the board of directors now of the so-called FIDO Alliance. And uh, the FIDO Alliance is some hundred plus companies that are all gathered together to, to try to arrive at a open standard for uh, sort of next generation internet authentication. Um, all of their work is device based. That is like the Yubico YubiKey. Um, and, and I guess I would characterize it as, as it, like sort of heavyweight. I mean, it is a the the actual the, there's there's two specifications in Fido, and U2F is the lightweight sort of <laughs> possible to actually implement specification, as opposed to I don't even remember what the acronym for the other one is, but uh, that one is is so complex that only one company I'm aware of has got it working and they're the company that helped to write the spec and you know they like to sell stuff and so it's more in their interest to keep it complicated and license their software than it is to make it open and easy and and by comparison because people will say well how does fido compare to the work i've been doing for the last year on squirrel um squirrel is like super lightweight it is you can explain it quickly and easily and implement it quickly and easily. Um, it it can use hardware, but it doesn't. It's not tied to hardware, where the Fido stuff always will be. So you know, th- there's certainly room for more than one solution in the industry, uh, and uh, we'll see how all this pans out. But so, what Ubico has now is the most inexpensive solution they've ever offered. That blue key. Um, the blue pill, the blue key you were holding, Leo, is only $18 on Amazon. And if you're a Prime member, shipping is free, so it's $18. Um, and that will not do 
all of the things we've talked about before with Yubico. That is, it's not a one-time password, you know, touch the thing and it, it, it emits a string of of sequentially encrypted one-time password tokens. Because yeah, it looks exactly the same as those. It does. It's going to be uh, well, hard to not confuse them. It's pretty much well, and and the blue color. That's that's, that's how it. you know All is right. it blue, um, uh, but it's also much less expensive than their prior technology. But it that but all it does is the Fido U2F, which currently is supported by Google and Chrome, but being an open standard can spread if it's going to. So. Uh, and knowing Stina, <laughs> it'll be spreading. Yeah, see, because so, here's the old YubiKey. And yep. <laughs> it's it's black. It doesn't yes, have a little just, key on it. As long as you have a color monitor uh, or, <laughs> eye, or, or I guess color eyes. But they also put a little so, key on the button so that you know it's a little different. That's true. Yep. Yeah. So you can, if, you, if you're, you can't tell the difference. So, so that one's inexpensive and does U2F. They're... Their newest products is the um, – oh, and that's called the security key. Google uses the term. I didn't see Go- Ubico mentioned anywhere on Google's page, which I, th- I thought was a little bit – I don't know. <laughs> Are they the only company doing it? Uh, no, actually. Others I think I noticed – The Ubico, they other- say in the letter they're on the – whatever, the, the panel, the board, the – yeah, 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 exactly. Anyway, so there's the I think it's the Neo and the Neo N are the two other new technologies. The Neo is 50 bucks and the Neo N is 60. Uh the and the Neo N, the N of the Neo N stands for NFC. So that gives you NF near field communications technology and both of those are these cute little almost square things that are just sort of like a like just the plug part of a USB, sort of like you took the Yuba key and snapped it off at, at, at you know, like where it in, uh, inserts. Um, anyway, uh, those are both available. And they do not only the, um, the new uh, Fido U2F, but all the other a traditional uh, Yubico protocols, one-time password. There's something called Java Card, which is another standard, and a couple other standards. So they're you know very much standards based, and where necessary, Stina goes and creates new standards, like she has with uh, the uh, the the basically the the bifurcation of Fido into U2F, which it's actually possible to use, and the other thing that's not off the ground yet because you know it's like the Spruce Goose. Um, of, of of authentication. Uh, so anyway, that the, if you just go to Yubico, uh, Y-U-B-I-C-O.com, which is what I did this morning, and l- click on products, it takes you to a nice grid where you can see the lineup of the various hardware offerings, their, the, the suggested retail pricing, and then like what protocols each one supports and so forth. So... Good stuff. Yeah, uh, and then click on products up there in the menu. I did. These are. This is where you go. Oh, but scroll you down. Can... Oh, I'm sorry. Products, then hardware. See? Yeah, that's where I am. Ah, there <laughs> it is. Okay. Ah, here okay. we go. Perfect. Very nice. Yep. Somebody and said there's... Neo N does not have NFC. Just Neo. Uh oh. Wait. Really? Well, I. If you trust the chat room. 
Okay, well, and I'm looking at this, right there, and I don't see I NFC on the Neo and just on the Neo. Uh, oh, see, does, so say, it does show it on the. That's weird. So the Neo is less expensive than the Neo N. I don't know. I guess I don't understand that. Anyway, that's why I recommended people go there because the grid it's is comprehensive. Yeah, I think the only one that, that has NFC is the Neo. The Neo N okay. does not. Maybe that's what the N stands for. No <laughs> not, NFC. Not no NFC. NFC. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, that's pretty much all of our news for the week. I did want to uh, just sort of I, I noted over the last couple weeks that I was getting many more sets of four yabba dabba doos. And I had noted over the summer that that seemed to have sort of disappeared. And, and of course, the, the difference is an individual license for Spinrite is, generates a single yabba dabba do um, uh, when the, a, a purchaser uh, obtains a license. And the way we operate is that corporations can get, can get a license for all of the machines in a single physical site like, you know, whatever, regardless of how large the site is, by having four licenses. And that just seemed, when I was coming up with the policy, a much simpler way of organizing things because I thought someone might want to try it and see if it works. And then they they would have bought a license for one. So then if they wanted a site license, you know, we'd have to like have a some sort of a site license for people who already owned one or refund that their purchase and then issue them a site license. It just seemed like a mess. And so I liked the idea of just having X number of regular licenses. And then it also kind of was really cool with upgrades because if we then had a paid-for upgrade, then they could upgrade their site license by upgrading their individual licenses. Anyway, just... So, so the idea is that when I hear four yabba dabba doos, somebody purchased a four license site license, and for whatever reason, the last couple of weeks they've been like they've come back. So I just wanted to thank people because actually one of my favorites is when I hear three because that means that someone got one, they checked it out, and then they said, "Okay, we want to." You know, this thing works. We want to use it site-wide. And then they bought three more in order to have a total of four licenses and then have permission to run it on all of their machines uh, within a facility. So anyway, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. That, uh, I don't know, that keeps the wheels turning here at, over at GRC and lets me uh, do everything else I do. Did you? Ex- I guess you explained why Yabba Dabba do and all of that. It's well, we don't hear it anymore, right? Because you turn it off during the show. I, Every I, once in a while, I, it'll be on by accident. Yeah, I, I I mute it because it's a little distracting. But it was just what I have is I have a I, I have a, a a system that that sort of monitors the uh, GRC servers. It's sort of like a you know my my custom version of of um of the advertiser. You just. Uh, introduced us to pager duty um, pager duty um pager so, duty 
and, and so I ha- so and for example, there was a time when we were under denial of service attacks, more or less, <laughs> annoyingly frequently, and so. I built a sort of a real-time bandwidth monitor and server monitor that watches all of the things, the processes and, and servers at, in, in our off-site facility uh, at, at level three. And among other things, it uh, – and it's very cool. It uses UDP. It's all custom stuff that I built. And so uh, you know, I'm behind multiple layers of NAT, and so nothing can get in here. And, but but UDP, as we know, is able to 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 return up the path that it that it exited. So so my system here sends out a UDP query every second or two. Actually, I think it's every two seconds. It sends out a UDP query just asking for an update, and that maps through the all of the security that that surrounds the fortress of solitude and and research. Um, so that the server, when it receives a query, or the you know the, the 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 system at GRC, when it receives a query, it assembles a current state, and then set and then returns a UDP reply, which UDP doesn't really expect one. It's just you know the idea is it might get one, but the but the NAT routers are have like been opened by the outgoing query. And so it, so the, the servers send back a, a here's where everything stands reply. One of the things in there is that the total of spin right sales. And so at this end, I look at, I look to see if there's been any change. And if there is, I divide that by the, the cost of spin right, which tells me how many licenses sold <laughs> And I emit that many yabba dabba do wave files. So it's modulus it's, spin right cost. It's modulus spin right licenses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I, I think you. Ex- I, I think we assume that everybody who listens over the years has learned this, but you know, people still come in the chat room and say, "What are those lights blinking over Steve's left shoulder?" So we yeah. have to assume that there are people here who are and not. What's Fred Flintstone doing in the background? Hip to the lore. Yeah. Of the Fortress yeah. of Solitude. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, do you want to take a, let me take a break. Yep. Because you're going to get into this now. Uh, oh, poodle, baby. Poodle poo. Yeah. Um, before we do, I do want to tell you, uh, you know, if you listen to the show, you don't need to be told that um, sending emails is probably not the most secure way to communicate. They're wide open on the internet. Everybody can read them. It's also, as you well know, I'm sure by now, a great way to spread malware, spear phishing and all of that. The last thing you really want to do in business is send an email attachment, and yet it is the first thing you want to do in business. So what do we do? How do we solve this problem? Well, I've got a great solution, and I've been using it for more than a a couple of years now. It's called ShareFile, and I'm a huge fan. I send, uh, well, we send a lot of stuff. We send contracts out. We send... uh, presentations to potential clients and i on the radio stuff i send out audio to radio stations and the best way to do this to avoid bounce backs to keep it secure to keep it private and and frankly to avoid this whole idea that you might be sending malware is ShareFile, citrix ShareFile, created by business for business it is the b2b solution and you need to be using it in your business honestly you can send files of almost any size, massive files without bounce backs. 
You control who has access to those files uh, and their levels of permissions, how long they can download it for, how many copies they can download it for. What I do is there's a uh, there's all these different share file tools. The one I use synchronizes um, my desktop with my share file uh, cloud storage. Imagine, if you will, Leo's <laughs> share file store all the files i put up there by radio station i have folders within folders on my desktop it synchronizes them up i can use the share file uh, apps to on my phone uh, or my tablets to or just log into my share file account on any computer to send files so i don't have to always have access to those files i always do uh, via the share file cloud you can also request files which is really cool and share file is designed to work with a big variety of industries it's hipaa compliant compliant with regulations in the financial industry. They now have e-signature using right signature, which is so awesome. So not only are you sending documents, but you can sign them and send them. The branding is your company. So if you're a lawyer, for instance, and you're requesting documents from other lawyers, they don't see ShareFile. They see your name. They see your firm. It really is great. Go to ShareFile.com. On the front page at the very top, you'll see something that says podcast listeners. Yes, we're back in the fine print there. But go up there and click that if you would, because that way Steve will get credit. You'll get that 30-day free trial. And if you use the offer code security now, uh, Steve will get credit for it. That's sharefile.com. Click the microphone at the top. Choose your industry, too. You don't have to, but it's nice if you do because they'll customize it to fit the, your needs in the legal industry. Is that astrology? No. Oh, oh. Maybe. I don't know. Advertising, <laughs> architecture, accounting, oh, biotech, construction, consulting, education, energy. It's pretty much serious stuff. Tech services, video. Astrology would go under other. Yeah. <laughs> Try it for 30 days. You, you, know, you know what? If you're sending somebody their star chart, hey, you don't want somebody else reading that. And they're probably not very technical. And I can guarantee you that. <laughs> so yeah. you just want something easy for them, and it is easy for them. Sharefile.com. Use the offer code security now for 30 days free. <laughs> We're going to go from not very technical uh, to, and what, what's your zodiac sign to uh, fasten your technical seatbelts. Uh-oh. Uh, but I think everyone's going to enjoy this. Um, okay, so uh, the once again – the industry suffered another shock, uh, much like Heartbleed uh, and – why can't I remember the name? Shell Shock. Shell Shock. You're blanking yeah. it out. I am. Uh, so, you know, this was – okay, so – and the headlines all were, you know, hyperventilating and and people were making sure on Twitter that I had seen this and I knew what was going on. Um, and the – the scary the scary headline title is that there's a new problem with secure com- connections uh involving a means of making browsers and servers use SSL version 3 which oh, and then leveraging a a vulnerability in that in order to crack the security of SSL version 3. So immediately sites popped up on the net that would allow people to check whether remote websites had like responded to this poodle problem 
Uh, and uh, SSL Labs, of course, quickly added a test to, to allow anyone to check. I started getting people saying, oh, Steve, GRC is vulnerable. And it's like, OK, everybody, first of all, GRC is not vulnerable. Uh, never, never has been a problem. I'll, I'll explain that at the end of the podcast, why this is not, I mean, independent of this, why it's not a concern for, for the way I implemented things. But so, he, so here's the story here, here is exactly what's going on and why, despite all of this and the fact that none of that is wrong, it's actually not a problem. Um, the the fact, well, I, I don't want to step on myself, so I'll, I'll take us through this. So what's what's going on? Um, as we know, uh, SSL has had problems through time. Um, it was uh, originally created by well-meaning, smart guys at uh, Netscape in order to create a secure link between browsers and servers so that we could do things like have usernames and passwords and cookies that could not be, that were not in the clear because before that everything was in the clear. It was like email is pretty much today. Just, you know, there, there go the bytes. You can, if you're sniffing the wire, you can see them go by. So, so SSL of course started off at, at one and has been incrementing uh, sort of slowly and in various um, uh, amounts over time uh, as problems have been found and fixed. And we finally got up to the point where we were ready to go to three and someone decided, let's change the name. And I was like, oh, really? Okay, fine. You know, and th th that decision never comes off very well. And in fact, that's been a problem because we have SSL version 3.0 and then TLS version 1.0, but TLS version 1.0 is newer than SSL version 3.0. So not only did we change the name, but we reset the version number. And so, you know, that, that, that confuses people. But then we've moved with TLS. Uh, SSL was a secure socket layer. That's what the acronym SSL stands for, because in Unix world, uh, Unix thinks in terms of, of communication sockets. That's the, the name of the abstraction for communicating between two endpoints on the Internet. You, you create a socket and then you connect to another socket on a different machine and then they talk to each other. So secure socket layer is SSL. TLS um, is transport layer security. Um, so we have a new acronym for the same thing, just a newer version of the same thing. This could and, all be part of our new show on the Twit Network, Acronym Olympics. <laughs> acronym soup. Yes. We really, we should do that. would be a good thing to do, like just give people acronyms and say, can you define this? Because you know, crazy. I'll bet it, it would be possible to do an entire podcast where you simply <laughs> no, no English. string acronyms together with small conjunctions yeah. where the, the RC4 and the CBC of the, S, of the SSL and the TLS. You could. And so forth. You yeah. could, definitely. So, um, and actually having listened to Andy Anatko on MacBook <laughs> Weekly talk, talk, talk about how he wants to use NASA 
uh, as his ringtone. audio. It's like, have you ever heard of anything more geeky? I mean, I think he's you know, the I'm, king. I, it's <laughs> that's my point exactly. The king of the geeks. Yes. Yeah. So, um, okay. So TLS is where we are now, and we went. Of course, we started at 1.0, 1.1. We're now at 1.2. So there was there. There's always a problem as we are moving standards forward uh, with, with systems that aren't advancing. And, you know, it's like not good not to advance, but it's the reality. So it turned out when we moved forward to TLS and clients, that is, you know, users with... Windows, Linux, and Mac, and, and, and smartphones, and so forth, had clients that were initiating state-of-the-art, modern, recently updated, refreshed connections, they would connect to a server and say, hi there, I uh, know about TLS 1.1. Because 1.2 is really very much newer. So probably 1.1, maybe 1.1, well, certainly 1.2 now. And there were some servers that said, huh, and hung up. Just they, you know, again, if everything works smoothly, there's supposed to be a, like a version protocol handshake. And we've we've discussed how how SSL negotiates. The idea is... That you, that both ends of a connection advertise the highest level of the protocol that they're aware of, and they agree on the 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 highest level they both speak. So that happens on a on a on a monotonic scale in terms of versioning, but then the client may have a different set of ciphers that it knows about. So it sends a list of all the ones it knows about to the server, and then the server browses through those and chooses the, in some order, hopefully from strongest to least strong, uh, the, the, the ones that it knows about that it has in common, and then they agree. So, and, and that's a neat theory, but it has been subject in the past to so-called protocol downgrade attacks. Various ways, I mean, again, bad guys are clever. And as we know, they only get cleverer. Um, so we, we need to protect ourselves against, against a bad guy coming in. Well, I mean, a classic one in the early days, there was actually, there was actually a null cipher that was in the set of ciphers. Because the, the original engineers of SSL said, hey, you know, what if something, you know, if you're trying to connect to a skate key or something, that I mean, it has no crypto whatsoever. So, you know, maybe we should allow that. And so there you could actually, you could actually say, I don't, I'm, I would like to talk to you over SSL, but I don't have any ciphers. And the other end would say, oh, shoot. Well, okay. And so you'd have an SSL communication with no encryption. Which really sort of defeated the whole purpose. It's just SL. But There's no S in there. the SL. <laughs> exactly. It's secure, but not not insecure. 
ISO. No, j- no j- 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 just, just a socket, socket layer. Yeah. Socket layer, but yeah. no secure socket layer. So, okay, so when when we realized, we the industry, uh, that there were lame servers that were confused if we even mentioned TLS, we'd say TLS and they'd just hang up. It's like, ooh, okay, I guess not. So browsers learned to, if they got hung up on when they offered TLS, to try SSL. And, you know, if they knew about TLS, they certainly knew about SSL3 because that was the end of the line of the SSL acronym. So they'd say, how about SSL3? And at least it was SSL. So then the server would go, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Let, you know, what do you got? And we'd go from there. So, so the, the problem with that is that that opens us to a version downgrade. That is, if, and this is an if we'll be coming back to several times, if an attacker managed to get into the connection. I'm the classic man in the middle. Now, in this case, it's not just an eavesdropping connection. That is not a passive man in the middle who can monitor, like we now know the NSA likes to do. This is an active man in the middle, which is, again, it's, a, it's another escalation in attack requirement where where the, somehow the the victim's client traffic is passing through the attacker who is able to change it. And in the initial packets, which are are going back and forth during this negotiation, um, there have been weaknesses in the past, which TLS further strengthens. But in this case, all the attacker has to do is force an error, which is trivial. It's hard, actually. You know, you got to balance checksums and do all kinds of things not to have an error. But you, all the attacker does is lead the browser to believe that they are trying to connect to one of these lame servers. And so the client will go, oh, I guess no TLS here. <sighs> Fine, we'll use SSL3. <laughs> So, so, so the, the, so the stage setting portion of this is that we are, we, we today are, are subject to this, this, this protocol downgrade where a bad guy convinces the browser that the server can't do TLS. So now we do SSL3. So, and, and so, 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 um, so the first part of this is that we're we're forced onto SSL3 from an active man in the middle attack. Now now we have SSL3 problems which we had deliberately gotten away from moving to TLS. And SSL3 has a choice of basically two ciphers. It can use RC4 or CBC. 
Um, and we've talked about both in the past. I'll give a quick review. RC4 is a really lovely stream cipher uh, from RSA. Um, the problem is that when we looked at it more closely, we discovered that the way it starts up is not secure. RC4, it, it, it's, it's lovely because it's just elegant. I love it for its simplicity. Um, you have two tables of 256 bytes. So like two, base, basically two vectors. Oh, no, I'm sorry. One vector. It's even, it, it's two pointers. One vector, one table of 256 one byte entries and two pointers into the table. And basically you, when you give it the key, it scrambles the initial starting conditions into something which is based on the key. And then as you run the cipher, it continues to, to basically swap bytes in the table and at the same time emit pseudo-random data. And all you could almost imagine how if the table wasn't really scrambled up well, then the bytes wouldn't be the bytes coming out wouldn't be that random. And that's precisely the problem. If the designers had just warmed it up more, if they'd like run it for 256 extra bytes, then the table would have always been sufficiently scrambled that it wouldn't have been a problem. But the the weakness turned out to be that the first data being emitted by the RC4 cipher, which is then XORed with the user's plain text to create cipher text, it wasn't as random as we needed. And in fact, even more recently, detailed additional analysis showed that it's worse than we thought. So RC4 is out. No one likes it anymore. We hope no one's using it anymore. You know, it, it is, not only was it used, of course, famously in uh, SSL, but even more famously in the, w, the, the original Wi-Fi protocol, WEP, which is where we really saw it collapse. Okay, so the, the better... Cipher, although not without its own problems, is CBC, which is an acronym for Cipher Block Chaining. CBC takes the data in blocks of bytes where the size of the block is the size of the cipher's block. So, so, so let me just say that to remind people that RC4 is a stream cipher meaning that it emits a stream of bytes which are unpredictable. And so you XOR those bytes with your data to get the, your data encrypted. And then on the other end, you give it the same key. It generates the same stream of pseudo-random key-based bytes, which are unpredictable. You XOR those with the ciphertext and out pops the original plain text. So very neat and elegant. Um, uh, there are problems with a simple XOR cipher, though. 
such as you absolutely have to make sure you never use the same stream twice because then the whole thing falls apart in interesting ways that we have talked about in, on, in prior podcasts. By comparison, cipher blockchaining uses a block cipher like AES, the Rheindahl cipher that we're using now, which is a 128-bit block. It t- the Rheindahl cipher, and if anyone isn't familiar with it, we did a beautiful podcast on it, on AES, some years ago when it had been, been when Rheindahl had been chosen as the advanced encryption standard AES cipher for the industry. Um, and that was an NIST-based uh, competition that that looked at all of various candidates and said, okay, we like this for, uh, like, it meets all of our criteria better than any other cipher. So we're, we're choosing it. That one takes 128 bits or um, 16 8-bit bytes at a time and converts those to a, sort of maps them to a different 128 bits under the influence of a key. So the key uniquely determines the mapping between the 2 to the the 2 to the 128 possible input bit combinations into a uniquely different uh 2 to the 128 output um the problem with cbc is that it is a block cipher which is to say it only operates in these 16-byte blocks, whereas RC4, you could say, ah, my data is 55 bytes long. Uh, give me 55 random bytes, which I will XOR with my 55 bytes of plain text, and out comes 55 bytes of ciphertext. The problem with block ciphers is they work only in multiples of, that, of the encryption block size, which is, in this case, 16 bytes. So if you have any data you're wanting to transmit or encrypt, which is not an even multiple of 16, you have to round it up. You have to, with a process called padding, you pad the balance out to an even block size multiple so that you can then run it through this block at a time process. Okay, so... Another problem is with encryption is that we not only need to encrypt, but we need to authenticate, something we've often talked about. We, that is, we need to make this tamper-proof. And Moxie Marlinspike uh, is famously quoted uh, saying, if you have to perform any cryptographic operation... Before verifying the MAC, the MAC is the so-called message authentication code. If you have to perform any cryptographic operation before verifying the MAC on a message you've received, it will somehow inevitably lead to doom. Um, Which is to say that when you receive a message, absolutely the only safe thing to do is check to see if it's been tampered with. Don't do anything else. First, 
verify that the message is authentic using the the message authentication code, the, the, the MAC. Unfortunately, the guys who designed SSL got it backwards. SSL authenticates, then encrypts when it's sending, which means that we have to reverse the process when we're decrypting, meaning that when we get the message, we have to, because it was authenticated, then encrypted, we have to decrypt, then authenticate. So that breaks this rule of never doing anything other than check for tampering. We decrypt, then we do the tamper checking in SSL protocol. And that's a critical downfall in the original design. And it's, it's the way the beast attack happened that we discussed a few years back. And this is essentially a, a, a variation on beast. Um, once we've, once we've been able to downgrade the, the communication from TLS to SSL version three, due to the fact that we decrypt, then we authenticate, it is possible for, the ba- for someone in the middle, in a man-in-the-middle position, to very much the way that it happens with Beast, to probe the communications, to probe the decryption. Um, the padding at the end of the message um, can't, it is checked separately at decryption, because padding is a process of, of, of encrypting and that you have to pad, then you encrypt, which means you decrypt and then you check the padding. So, and, and the padding is always by definition uh, from, you know, it, it, it is, it is, um, it, it's the, the last block of the cipher is the, is the pad content. And the way the, the CBC cipher Works when you're decrypting something that was encrypted with CBC. The second, the the second to the last block of cipher text, that is the the text to be decrypted, is XORed with the last block of plain text. So. And, and it's a it's sort of an unfortunate characteristic of of cipher block chaining, but what that means is that if the if an attacker can mess with the second to the last block of cipher text, they can that is by flipping bits in the second to the last block of cipher text, they can induce bit flips in the last block of plain text. Uh, what that does is it gives an attacker control over the tail end of the message and allows them to essentially probe the plain text because what happens is after the decryption occurs, the padding is checked. And if the padding is wrong, it'll generate a padding error 
before it generates a message authentication failure. And that allows the attacker to to essentially probe the plain text by looking at the errors being returned by the server. Now, this takes a long time. This, for example, takes 256 on average. Um, wait, is it 128 or 256? I, I, in what I was reading, the 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 um, analysis kept saying 256. But it seemed to me it ought to, they ought to be able to to get lucky, and and it ought to be an average of 128. So maybe it was a maximum of 256 and an average of 128, which is you know half the number of possibilities of eight bits. So. So they probe one byte at a time in order to obtain uh, the information about the plain text, then go to the next byte. So first of all, some of the, many of the reports said that it were, would require several hundred probes. In fact, several hundred probes get you one byte of information. So it's actually several thousand probes in order to get you a chunk of bytes like a cookie, for example. Now, okay, so, so what, what are we trying to get here? Let's step back from this for a second. We are the bad guy, the attacker in the middle, is, it would love to, for example, get the session cookie. Remember that once the user logs in, provides their credentials when they log in, they maintain a persistent session with the remote server because every time their browser, so long as they're logged in, makes additional queries to the remote server, it provides the cookie saying, reminding the server for every single query, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is me coming back, and here I am again, and here I am. So that's the session cookie, and you know it's we don't we, the lengths vary. Typically, they're huge. You know, like you know, long mothers. So it's going to take many sets of multiple hundreds of probes stepping through in order to extract the cookie. Now, where do these probes come from? Well, the probes have to originate from the browser. That is, the man on the middle. This is all opaque to, to, to the attacker who's poised himself in the middle. They're seeing gibberish go by. And so because they have an intimate knowledge, that because, because they've forced a downgrade to, version, to SSL version 3, they know what protocol has been negotiated, but they don't have access to the encryption keys. That was, that was securely negotiated by SSL3. So they're being forced to futz with the data going from the client to the server, making changes, introducing errors, which means part of this attack requires malicious code in the browser to initiate these thousands of queries. So one of the reasons the bar is so high on this is that not only do, do you have to have an attacker who's positioned themselves in the middle, but the page 
which is generating these queries has to be running malicious code in the context of the site that you're attacking. Because remember, we also have the whole the whole um, same domain protection that prevents script from obtaining information about any other domain. It's only able to receive information to to under, to look at the the domain information um, for for the domain from which the script it's you know same origin for, for, from which the script originated. So somehow the attacker not only has to get themselves in the middle, but they have to inject malicious code into the user's browser and that causes the browser to be initiating all of these hundreds of queries and they and the attacker has to have a some sort of a dialogue establish a dialogue so that it's able to tell the the clients the malware running in the client okay got that byte now what ha- what has to happen is the the client needs to pad the query by putting some additional stuff in the header to force the cookie to change its byte alignment because the attack requires um, the, the the attack operates on the boundary of successive blocks of decryption. So first of all, this is very complicated and it requires active participation by by malicious code in the browser. Okay, so let's assume that somehow all of this happens that that you know it's it's that an attacker is able to arrange to make that happen. They they have to get themselves in line, they have to be able to modify traffic, they have to be able to inject in somehow into a session that they've it's never clear how they can inject anything into the browser. I mean, th- this is a secure page. And all they're able to do with thousands of queries, which which they've induced the browser to generate, and they're breaking the queries as they zoom by in order to cause the server to generate errors, saying in order to send back padding errors that allow them, the, the, the attacker, to eventually determine a single byte, then tell the browser, okay, got that one, shift everything down, now I'm going to work on getting the next one. So so it's, not a, it's never been made clear how that malicious um, script gets running in the browser, but that's another requirement for this. So the, 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 so the, the, the bar for pulling this off requires all of that to be in place. So I'm going to, after Leo tells us about our final sponsor of the podcast, explain what the official fix is, why GRC doesn't care, and why this entire thing is completely bogus. And not just because it's hard to do, because it's ridiculous. If Leo is still here. Oh, (laughs) I, I'm sorry, Steve. I I was shaving. I <laughs> oh, I feel sorry for our audio I, listeners. I got distracted, and they, they didn't get to see Santa. <laughs> it's so hard when you have a Sherry, Harry's shave kit, not to just shave in the middle of the show. 
I, you know, this is a perfect opportunity, Leo, because as you said, I normally go for about an hour uh, before uh, before uh, you have to push any buttons. I just, I didn't realize. Very nice. Now, I have to say that the normal cream is a little heavy for me. Well, you and might so, like this new foaming shave gel. I I have not yet had the chance. <laughs> I have it sitting on the counter. But, you Your know. timing is perfect, Steve. It, so the uh, deal on this, by the that. way, I notice because, uh, you know, I have a Winston at home, but you yep. like the Truman. Yes, and so I, I got the Truman. And I, you know what? I do like the Truman. It's beautiful. It has a... It has a little bit better grip. I like the grip better. Mm. It's it's a little tackier. Anybody listening right now is going, what the hell are they talking about? We're talking about <laughs> Harry's, my friend. Harry's. Harry's is an uh, uh, official provider of shave equipment to the Security Now podcast. And and for our audio listeners, when Leo switched the camera back to himself. <laughs> there was a little pause. He looked, he looked like December 25th <laughs> and Santa Claus because his entire, his entire mitt was covered with white shaving cream. I saw the Harry's. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I had to shave. I, you know what's great about Harry's is these are really remarkable razors. They make they the are. blades at their own factory in Germany. When they first started Harry's, they said, "Where do you get the best blades? We want their their notion was drugstore blades are overpriced, and they are like four bucks a blade. They're ridiculous. And so their notion was, well, we surely we can make uh, blades for less. That would be even better." And they did a little research, and they found out there are two factories in the world that make the best razor blades, and they're both in Germany, of course. So they bought one. They bought yes, one of the neither, two factories. Ne- neither of them is Gillette, by the way. Uh, yeah. I, I have never cut myself, and I'm shaving yeah. to prove that. I have never cut myself with a Harry's blade because they're extra sharp, but they're really well made. They don't... You know, I bet you if you looked at a microscope, you could you would be are, able to are, are see there the difference. Five, are, are they five of them? Five or yeah, four? Five, blade, four. Uh, five, five blades. Five blades, yeah. Nice. Uh, really good. Now, this is amazing. You get the sh- – this is the Truman kit. You get the blade – I mean, the uh, the handle. Uh, you get – how many blades do you get? You get three razor blades. You get their yep. new foaming shave gel, which I really like, uh, for 15 bucks. And that's going nice. to get you started – and then yep. uh, I get Harry's. And get you addicted. Yeah, I should warn you. I get Harry's every other month. I uh, I get eight eight to, uh, I get four boxes of blades, and I get uh, f- uh, I think four creams. I'm going to start doing. Well, I kind of like the cream. You know, you get the choice. They have creams in the shape. I like I like them both. Uh, these are shipped free, and because they make their own blades, and they don't have a storefront, and they don't have to put them locked up in the CVS. These are very affordable. These are great blades, my friends, at a great price. And you get them in the mail, and they pay the shipping. And all you got to do is go to H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now. We'll take 5 bucks off your first purchase. That makes it even less. But I got to warn you, Steve and I are both hooked. Harry's. Yeah, that's all I shave with now. That's Harry's. With. He says he shaves on demand. Who's demand? Jenny's. It's I'm ready for the now. World Series, my friends. All right. Okay, let's, let's get so, back to the poodle. Okay, so first of all, um, the recommendations in the industry, which flew around last week with, you know, great gasps and breathless instructions and websites popping up to warn people if somebody still supported SSL 3.0 was either to, well, you know, Disable CBC, except what? Then you're going to fall back to RC4? That doesn't work. So it's disable 
SSL3 completely. That's like that was the only remediation anyone had. Um, I hope people are a little skeptical now that anyone could actually pull this off. It's not even clear to me how how it could actually be done. But in a minute, I'll tell you why no one ever will. <laughs> um, the the official fix is very clever, and that is that remember how I said during the negotiation of the protocol, the client provides a list of the ciphers that it supports. It's called the cipher suite, the suite of ciphers that it knows about. Sends it up to the server. Server looks, looks over them and picks hopefully a good one that they share, and then that's what they use. Well, there have been other things in the past that have sort of overloaded as the term is in programming, overloaded that with additional meaning. And there is a pseudo cipher suite called TLS fallback SCSV, stands for TLS fallback signaling cipher suite value. And it, it, it's included in the list of ciphers which the client knows about. But it doesn't represent a cipher. It represents an assertion that it knows about TLS. Because only if it's in the list, it, would it, would, only if it knows about TLS, would it know to include it in the list. And so this is very clever. Because if an attacker tried to perform the downgrade attack by faulting that initial handshake, the client would, believing that it had no choice, drop back to SSL3. But it would still include the TLS fallback SCSV value. The server that's also aware of TLS... Um, would have seen a, um, oh, w uh, would not have received that initial handshake because the man in the middle grabbed it, blocked it, and returned an error. So what the server sees is an SSL3 request that includes in the cipher suite negotiation the TLS fallback SCSV value, which is to say specifically to detect this and the server says no that tells the server that the client is asking for an ssl3 connection while knowing about tls a client should ask for a tls connection if it's including the tls fallback among its cipher suite values so it's a beautiful prevention for this kind of protocol downgrade. Unfortunately, it's new. And that means the right solution for this problem is for the endpoints to upgrade to support this. Open SSL, immediately added support. If you update to whatever your platform is, if you're a, a, a Linux or a Unix, and you update your system to the latest OpenSSL, 
it now knows about this. Now, it's got to be supported at each end. So we need the servers to update too. I imagine next month, Microsoft will have a patch for all of their supported servers uh, and platforms uh, because you can also receive connections on a non-server to add TLS fallback SCSV support. That's the right answer. That completely solves the problem. Now, GRC is not vulnerable because I don't use cookies. I don't, in fact, I don't use any state in my ciphers. I've mentioned this before, but even my e-commerce system operates in a cookie-free fashion. At the, after the user has, um, has provided some information, that's encrypted in a, in a blob for which only GRC has the key and provided back to the user with their next page. And then when they submit that, the blob is returned. So at no point does GRC ever have any state information. No one has to log in to GRC. There is no notion of logging in to GRC. Uh, We do have cookies, but that's only for background R&D to sort of look at statistics of how cookies are being handled by different browsers. We use it for nothing. So uh, for anyone who is worried that GRC is still supporting SSL3, uh, yes, I am, and I intend to continue doing so. I will certainly update the server next month or whenever Microsoft produces the fallback uh, support, but it's really not necessary because at least for GRC, there's there's no danger in falling back to 3.0 because in the first place, I don't think anybody is ever going to perpetrate this this attack just for reasons of it being so difficult. But here's the final point. Not only is it incredibly difficult, it's completely bogus. Because if because the absolute requirement to pull this off is that the attacker somehow get malicious code in the client running in the context of the site that is being that is under attack so that queries are being issued to that site and that it then do these thousands of queries in order to provide the opportunity for the attacker to break the 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 end of the queries in order to generate the padding failures Okay, that's ridiculous. If if anybody could get script running in the user's browser, even without any fault in the protocol in SSL, even under TLS 1.2, the latest one, a client could easily use side channel leakage in order to send, in order to communicate with somebody passively, not even an active attacker, a passive listener on the connection. The client knows what its cookies are, for example. The, 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 some, that's something you can easily read in JavaScript is your HTTPS uh, server-side authentication or your various cookies. So the client could simply issue 
a essentially send out in binary, for example, binary encode the cookie in short in a sequence of short and long queries. Short query, short query, long, long, short, long, long, short, 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 long, short, long. Somebody monitoring just looks at the length of the outgoing query, which which is being which is the client, the malicious client they stuck in the user's browser, essentially like using Morse code to to communicate the sensitive data out over the wire. And so a passive attacker can use what is essentially a side channel attack in order to obtain that information. And that works on any protocol. It doesn't require any vulnerability, and it's vastly simpler than than this ridiculous thing that's going to get closed up here in a month or two. So anyway, when I when I looked at closely at what it took to actually pull this off, um, it looks like what they did was they, I mean, they, they truly did find a problem. And yes, pro, there, there's a problem with the protocol that should get fixed. We always want to fix our protocols. So any weaknesses should get fixed. I'm sure this will be. It's already fixed in OpenSSL. The other server platforms, I'm sure, will be pushing out support for TLS fallback shortly. So this problem will go away. But but it, to me, it looks like they took a theoretical vulnerability and then reverse engineered an attack, which is so difficult to pull off. There are If, if you could arrange, if you could set the situation up that makes that attack possible, then you're already able to do something far more easily and far more damaging against which there is no protection whatsoever. A side channel attack using query length in order for the browser to communicate out to a passive listener. So there you go. And Leo... (laughs) Is now smoothly shaven. Do I? Yes, I am. And uh, go ahead, kiss that there. <laughs> Do you, uh, if I run cookies on a browser, is it worth uh, worrying? I mean, you're no. invulnerable because you don't use cookies. It's just too hard to do this, even if you it's, do use cookies. Yes. It's a theoretical attack. Nobody has ever been attacked by it. I don't think anybody ever will. By the, by the, I mean, I just, it's, it's not at all clear how it can how it could ever actually be set up we we know some pieces but the requirement to run malicious script in the browser that's the deal breaker because if you can run malicious script in the you browser do a lot of other stuff too all bet yes yeah. all bets are off yeah. you don't need a downgrade attack you could do this over tls 1.2 it's ridiculous yeah that's the so key it's like okay it? thank you very much so, everybody you know in the words of yeah. frank zappa Oh, I don't have any audio. Darn it. I was going to play a little bit of uh, a Frank Zappa song in which he says, The Poodle Bites. Ah. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's where he gets his uh, mojo and his yabba dabba doos. So be sure you go on over there. Thank you to our listeners. Yes. Yes. Buy some Spinrite and make his uh, day and Fred Flintstone's day. You can also, while you're there, find so many other great things, all free. The only one he charges for is Spinrite. You've got the perfect paper passwords. you got password haystacks. You've got information about Squirrel and uh, test implementations and a whole forum on that. And you have a place where you can ask questions. And there's always questions for Steve 
You can tweet him because he's at SGGRC on the Twitter. But you can also go to GRC.com slash feedback and leave your questions there. Do you think – I know this was scheduled to be a Q&A. <laughs> Let's a, try for one next week. any luck, we'll have – uh, As long as the sky doesn't fall, <laughs> yes. We'll, I will suck up our mailbag from this week and last week, and we'll have a great Q&A next week. Although I'm having to think that there may be this YubiKey uh, may end up uh, – Fido may end up being part of the uh, – show as well but you know we have yeah. room for that yeah uh, and if people ask me a question then that's a perfect segue there you go hint hint yeah. uh <laughs> of course you can also go there to get 16 kilobit audio versions the smallest version offered as well as nicely written transcripts uh that handwritten. Steve's handwritten by a human being steve pays no bots over here we do, mm-hmm. we do not have mm-hmm. siri at this mm-hmm. end uh-uh. we also have full quality audio and video at our site twit.tv slash SN and wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, you're sure to find it because it is one of the oldest shows on the net nowadays. <laughs> we're surviving everybody else. Yes, we're we like, are. We're like the cockroach of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, what fun. Thank you so much uh, for uh, helping us don our propeller caps. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Leo. Secure.